I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Eric Taylor. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Um, now, you are a fish scientist or a fish biologist with an interest in evolution, ecology, and uh, conservation. Uh, that's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Would you care to unpack that for us? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Daniel. Uh, essentially, I'm a fish biologist, and my interests really uh, rest on how fish make their living in their natural environment. That's the ecology part. Uh, how they got to where they are and how they got to look like what they look like, which is kind of the evolution part. And I'm interested in using that information to help them persist into the future, which is the conservation part. Great. That's uh, really well, really well-rounded. Uh, well, I'm sort of one of these people who likes to dabble in lots of different things. So I, I, that probably explains it. I like to do lots of different things. And, and uh, I like to do things that actually have an impact on... Uh, uh, how we make our living with uh, other living things on the planet. Now, how did you get into this? Uh, what did you study? What's your background? Uh, my back, well, I got into it initially. Apparently, if you look at my primary school academic record, which was spotty, but uh, where it was pretty good was in sort of natural sciences. So my older brother, he's the one who had the chemistry set and the aquarium, and that's where I kind of got really interested in biology. But I started off at Queen's University in the biology program there, the life sciences program. And I remember I always had this desire to come out uh, west after I saw a picture of the Vancouver Aquarium on the cover of the Na National Geographic, of all things, as a little kid. And uh, Queen's was great, but uh, I said, there's got to be more to biology and, and this thing called the ocean. I've got to try and figure something out like that out. So I moved to UBC uh, after two years of undergrad, gra uh, graduated here in 1981 with a, ba a bachelor's honors degree. Uh, then I did a master's, uh, then I did a PhD all at UBC and then I was away for about four years. Well, all total, I've been at UBC for most of about 40 years. That's impressive. Where did you go for those four years of, uh, I guess, early sabbatical? <laughs> yeah, or I, I was a postdoc. I did a postdoc at, uh, Dalhousie University in Halifax in the Marine Gene Probe Lab, because that, those are in the days when DNA fingerprinting was, um, sort of becoming popular and, and popular in applying it to natural populations, not just for human forensics. So I wanted to go there to learn that sort of stuff. Uh, and then I came back here as a visiting scientist at the Pacific Biological Station of DFO in Nanaimo. So that took up almost four years. And then I got my job here at UBC in 93. And all your degrees, were they in um, marine biology or? Um, well, my first one was in biology. And uh, actually I did a, uh, one one person who really, Helped me a lot was late uh, Paul J. Harrison. I did an honors degree actually on, in uh, algal physiology of all things. So I was really into algae. I had a pressed algae collection, all this sort of stuff. Loved Banfield looking at algae. Uh, and then I got a master's in zoology and I studied fish and fishes. And a couple of people after my exposure to them and their enthusiasm, I never turned back. I said, I got to have a career in fishes. As much as I loved algae and I still do, I just had to be working with fishes. Wonderful. And what is it about fish that just captures your imagination? 
Uh, well, their their diversity, of course, they're the most diverse of all vertebrates. Um, they have more species uh, in that group of fishes than all other vertebrates combined. And also, I think a lot of it is where they live, uh, where I study them, whether it be a, a coral reef or a beautiful mountain stream in the Yukon. They occur in beautiful places, and I can't separate the fish from where they, the landscape in which they live and the waterscape. So a lot of it is that. Um, but also they're just so endlessly fascinating. They do, they do just the most amazing things, including some fish that spend most of their time on land drink, uh, breathing air and their fishes. So with a set of actors like that, uh, they're just endlessly fascinating. That's really cool. You paint a really, um, interesting picture of, of fish. Uh, you mentioned that they're the most, uh, diverse or the, the, the most species of all vertebrates than all other vertebrates combined. Now, is that because they're they're, mo the, they're the most diverse, or is it because ichthyologists are more divisive? Ah, <laughs> uh, good question. No, no, they're not nearly as divisive as uh, birders, for instance, who everything that has one extra feather seems to be a, a different subspecies, although that's getting sorted out a bit now. And then some of them are valid subspecies. I think, it's, first of all, it's their age. They're really the first vertebrates. They've been around for over half a billion years. Uh, and they live in water, which uh, constitutes more than 70% of the Earth's surface area. So there's a lot of weird places they live. And when they live in weird places, whether it be the deep sea or a highly basic lake, they have certain adaptations that allow them to live in those areas. And that tends to help create new species. So it's a product of their age and the incredibly diverse environments they live in. That's a really good uh, pitch for ichthyology and marine science. Well, in, in my class, I always say there's no, if you're interested in the origins of diversity and you want to work on vertebrates, there's no better group to work on. Now, it sounds like you've had a fairly um, linear trajectory in your career, but have you had any setbacks or uh, causes to reconsider? Uh, you know, this is going to be a really boring answer, and I realize it might be unique, and I'm sensitive to the fact that other people have had uh, struggles or setbacks. I have not had a single one. I've been incredibly fortunate, um, largely because of the great people I've been around who've, who've helped me, um, but I, I can't paint any... No, I've, I've never had uh, a doubt about what I wanted to do. Um, and I can remember mentioning to my mother, whose uh, brother-in-law, so my, my, my father's brother, was a university professor in medicine. And I told my mother, I think I want to be a professor. And she said, oh, no. <laughs> that was her reaction because she associated with uh, her brother-in-law, with whom she did not get along that well with. So, but, but it worked out okay. Well, don't apologize for um, having a dream and following it to its full completion. Um, I remember I had a great aunt. She asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, I want to work in museums. And she turned to my sister and said, well, I guess some people want to waste their lives. <laughs> yeah, kind of a similar to what my mother sort of implied. That, that's interesting. In that long career, you must have made tons of discoveries. What's your favorite discovery? Oh, boy. Um well, I'm not, you know, i be, be perfectly honest with you. I'm not one of these scientists who makes, you know, sort of paradigm shifting discoveries. I tend to look at my work as a consistent sort of uh, body of work that has helped people appreciate how, in particular, British Columbia and, and Northwestern Canada, how we came to coexist with an amazing array of fishes we have and how we've used that information uh, to, to, to help uh, conserve them into the future. So, you know, I could list res results of dozens and dozens of studies or papers we've written. Um, you know, I mean, amongst the, the sort of most, we're sort of contributing in a small way to understanding how these 
uh, endemic species pairs of sticklebacks have evolved, which are textbook examples of speciation in action. And I played a relatively minor role in that to compare to some of my colleagues, but but I'm I'm certainly proud of the uh, of the information we've we uh, discovered there using a combination of geography and molecular techniques to to present evidence for a certain scenario of how these two species uh, in multiple lakes came into existence and how species occur in nature is really one of the fundamental unknowns of evolutionary biology. So I'm proud of that, I suppose. Great. You're doing the, the important foundational work. And so how did these uh, two species of, of sticklebacks diverge? Well, uh, the, the way we think, so they occur in, uh, I always forget, uh, so these particular types of sticklebacks, three-spine sticklebacks, are found throughout the whole Arctic region, throughout nearshore marine areas and uh, coastal lakes all around the Northern Hemisphere. But there's only, f- uh, at one time there were seven, I think, now there's only four or five lakes where these two species occur in the same lake around the entire world. So something clearly unique about the coastal area of southern British Columbia must have occurred for these things to occur there. And what we think basically was a double invasion. So their ancestors are marine sticklebacks. Um, When the ice sheet left 10,000 years ago, the sea flooded into these lakes. The lakes were colonized with these marine sticklebacks. The land rebounded and the sticklebacks evolved into freshwater sticklebacks. And then there was a secondary invasion a couple of thousand years later that allowed a second injection of marine sticklebacks into these lakes. The sea receded again. The sticklebacks, after the second invasion, finding the lake already occupied by the previous invaders, uh, sort of evolved into this second type. So this sort of multiple invasion scenario um, is not unique. Uh, in, in other words, there are typically island faunas often have multiple invasions that lead to different types of birds. Um, but uh, this is how we think these two sticklebacks co-occur in five lakes in British Columbia and nowhere else in the world because that geographic and geological event was unique to this area. That's really cool that you can actually tell what was going on uh, thousands of years ago based on just looking at fish populations today. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and you know, I should mention that a lot, a lot of the evidence, the geographic evidence comes from you know, looking at the lakes now and then looking up at a bank as you're driving along a road above the bank and seeing marine shells there. So we know that that area was clearly under seawater at some time, which adds sort of geographic and geological credence to this story we've um, articulated through using molecular genetic techniques. So the two work in, that's my interest. My really, I have a very strong interest in biodiversity and how that's driven by geography and geology. And do you have any idea what that second event was? Um, well, the, the second event was the second invasion uh, of the sea. So there was a, there was a, um, for, for whatever reason in this local area, there was a secondary rising of the sea level that allowed the lakes to be flooded a second time. I'm curious. I mean, that's what you were working on bef- before. Uh, what are you working on right now? I know you just had a book come out, right? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Well, I'm still, uh, we still do a lot of molecular now. We've sort of switched to gen- genomic work, but I have spent the last five years working on a book uh, to sort of satisfy my interest in the sort of nexus between biodiversity and geography. So I've, I've written a book called Rivers Run Through Us, uh, A Natural and Human History of Great Rivers in North America, where I profile 10 rivers and their influence on the human experience in North America since we first colonized this continent, uh, maybe as, up, uh, as long ago as 22,000 years ago. So, uh, at, yeah, so I spent, it's it just come out in October 1st. 
So I'm, I'm pleased. Uh, it was a lot of fun to do. It's hot off the presses. <laughs> hot off the presses, indeed. It's in the bookstore right now, just uh, in time for Christmas. What are the 10 rivers? Ah, uh, the 10 rivers. Okay. Uh, this is your pop quiz. Yeah, this no, my, my pop quiz. I've got it, and I'm, I'm anticipating angry emails from people. Why did you do this river? Why did you do that river? But uh, they start uh, with the Mackenzie, Yukon, Fraser River, Columbia River, uh, Sacramento, San Joaquin, Colorado, Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, Mississippi, Hudson River, and of course, uh, the gateway to the continent, the St. Lawrence River. Good rivers. <laughs> yeah, they're all great rivers. Every river, there's maybe 500,000 in North America, has a story to tell, but you couldn't tell all the stories. So I just picked these 10 as sort of representative. Wonderful. <laughs> and what are you doing in terms of your research? Are you still doing sticklebacks or? Uh, no, not so much. I've, I've pretty folk, I was pretty late to the sort of uh, genomics uh, game, as, as we say, but I've learned I've been stimulated by some of the work of my colleagues, and I, I work on. Uh, I work with a very good research research associate, Armando Geraldos, who's the sort of genomic brains behind the work. But we're working on two species of char, which is a fish, a North Temperate fish, Dolly Varden. Some people might know is, is one, and Arctic char. Many people probably know is another. And we work on where they come into contact in uh, Alaska, and we're trying to figure out what is the sort of geographic scenario of their origin. How old are they? Um, where did they come from? East, West, Arctic, the Western Pacific, the Eastern Pacific. And what are the, uh, what are the main factors in the environment that keep them from interbreeding actually define them as distinct species? So we're using probing the genome to try and figure out which regions are important in keeping these two species, uh, as valid species, even though they're capable of interbreeding. I'm sorry, did you say that a kind of fish called Dolly Varden? Dolly Varden, that's correct. <laughs> One of the few where the both the first Dolly and Varden are capitalized. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it stems from a name from a, um, the fish, uh, in, in, when they're in fresh water, typically, um, they have white spots on a dark background, but on the belly where that is white, they often have pink spots. And there's a, there's a character in Barnaby Rudge, Dickens' Barnaby Rudge called, who wore a Dolly Varden dress, which had pink dots on it. And the first person who saw one, which was a woman in, I believe in the McLeod River in California said, oh, look. It's a calico dress like a Dolly Varden. And that's where the name came from. <laughs> oh, you could do a whole podcast on the backgrounds of names. You certainly could. Species. You certainly could. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of my favorite parts of this podcast series has been hearing about field stories. Um, apparently, the field is just this crazy place where wonderful things and terrible things happen, too. Um, but ultimately, uh, fascinating and sometimes entertaining things. Do you have any field stories you'd care to share? Uh, sure. Um, as you say, I've, I've been lucky to spend a lot of time, uh, in the field, particularly earlier in my career, but mine, I have no terrible stories, but I have, there's been a consistent theme that I've had close encounters of the wildlife kind. And, uh, this involves bears, wolves, cougars, and black tip reef sharks. Uh, but the one I'll relate is during my PhD research, I was trapping young Chinook salmon as they were migrating down a stream, Slim Creek in the upper Fraser. And I had a trap set by a logging bridge and I was, because I had to check it every two hours at night, uh, I was sleeping in a suburban van. And if you remember the suburban vans, they have the big back and they have the two windows that look out the back doors. And I was eating in a logging camp, so I didn't have any food in the, uh, in the truck, but uh, I woke up at around four, five in the morning hearing this sort of rustling noise. And I was on my back. I sat upright. Uh, in the back of the suburban, looked out the back windows, and there was a very large black bear staring through the window, looking at me, pondering, how can I get into this tin can to perhaps consume part of that person? 
So it was very startling. Um, and of course I got up right away, opened and slammed the front doors, not the back doors and, uh, beeped the horn a few times and it sort of nonchalantly kind of wandered off. And I did see it a couple of other times later, but, uh, I was definitely quite wary after that. That, um, yeah, that seems to be a, a very common, uh, British Columbia field story having to deal with bears. For sure. And basically the same thing happened once with a cougar, once with two wolves. And once with my son, we found ourselves in the middle of a bait ball on a coral reef in Australia. And there were four black tip reef sharks swimming around us. We thought, oh, this bait ball is really cool. And then all of a sudden we realized, oh my goodness, those huge black tip reef sharks are circling around. And this is a little bit, we started sort of hyperventilating a bit. Um, and the uh, people told us, assured us later that black tip reef sharks, reef sharks are completely harmless. But when something's five or six or seven feet long, doesn't matter if it's purely a plant eater. It's still a bit intimidating. I was just going to ask how big that is. <laughs> Which is the scariest, wolves or, or bears or cougars? The wolves weren't scary at all. Um, the bear probably was because I felt the most vulnerable. Um, but uh, the cougar wasn't scary because it was moving away from us. But it was a little scary to know that it was sitting there watching us for a long time before we saw it. And there were, because there were two of us, I think it was doing the calculus going, well, if there's only one of them, I might take a run at it. But since there's two of them, maybe I better not. And it just sort of wandered off. But it was only five feet away from us. Oh, wow. Yeah, knowing that it probably was going through that mental process. It's a bit intimidating. <laughs> and and trying not to not not to panic, not to make sudden movements. Now, your work does sound fascinating. Uh, but I'm curious, why is it important? How does it affect um, our everyday lives? Oh, well, um, it, it affects our everyday lives because... In, in conducting our everyday lives as humans, we make choices about the environments we live in. And those choices almost invariably cause some harm to other things that live in the environment with us. So I really like to do, part of my research is helping people who have to mitigate those changes, helping them make decisions that uh, will uh, have the highest likelihood of minimizing the effects on, on wildlife. So particularly fish wildlife. So basically two reasons. One is I study things like how stickleback species arise. And to me, that they're part of our bioheritage. They're part of what makes British Columbia unique from Alberta. They're part of what makes Canada unique from Bolivia. So like great artwork that's of Canadian artists, we need to know something about our bioheritage because it helps define us as Canadians. And that's an, even if they're not, we, we don't use them or we have no conflicts with them, that helps improve our making Canada better known to Canadians, basically. And the other aspect is actually helping people should we move this fish from there to there because we're going to uh, impact the environments living in here? We use techniques to help people make decisions on the ground. So th that's why it's important to, to minimize the costs of our invariable impacts on the environment. I love that. That's a perfect uh, bridging between um, culture and nature. I, you know, I've right from, and I learned this from my mentors and I think it's because I spend a lot of time in nature. I really want to do something that, actually contributes to, I, I'm, I'm all for assembling knowledge for knowledge sakes. That's extremely important as well. Cause you, and also, cause you never know how it's going to be useful in the future, but I really get a big jazz out of actually providing information to people. And they say, this helps us do our job better. That's really satisfying. And I think that's not to be unexpected for people working at a university. No, no. And, um, yeah, again, you do a great job of explaining why something which, um, may not seem immediately important is actually very vital uh, to our knowledge base. Now, you're clearly really passionate about this, about your uh, marine science and fish science. Um, 
But what is your favorite aspect of your work? If you had to narrow it down to just like one or two. Well, um, I will certainly say it's not my favorite part, but certainly being back teaching live, it's made me reappreciate engaging with undergraduate students. Um, but you know, I'll be quite honest, teaching is not my favorite part. I love it, but it's not my favorite part. My favorite part is actually being in the lab. I love being in the lab and I love analyzing data and I absolutely love writing. I really do. I'm not saying I'm a particularly good writer, but I love the whole process of coming up with an idea, collecting the data, analyzing it and articulating an argument and communicating it. It's just fantastic. A lot of fun. And it's even better when you can do it in cool places. Absolutely. Now, of course, the inverse question, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Um, again, it's going to be a boring answer. And I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna because I'm definitely not. But I pinch myself every day that I work at a university, especially as a greater one as UBC. Uh, I suppose um, I hate proofing papers. You know, that stage where you get the final say for errors before it goes to the publishers, like, that's always nerve-wracking. Uh, some of the administration is getting a little bit much in, in terms of, um, well, some of the administrative aspects of running a lab are just a little annoying. They have to be done, and I'll do them, but they're annoying. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> how big is your lab? How many how many people do you have? Oh uh, well, it's not very big now. Um, it's uh, well, I've got uh, uh, two postdocs, two postdocs, uh, one postdoc, two research associates. And uh, three grad students. You know, it's down. I used to have around eight people in total, but uh, you know, I, I am winding down. So, uh, but they're all great. And you had a bit of a um, an interruption because you were uh, the head of the Beta Biodiversity, or you served a term. I did, I did. Yep, that, that was a lot. That was a lot of fun. Now you mentioned it's nice to be back to in person teaching. Of course, that was uh, interrupted by the COVID pandemic. Um, were you able to do research during the pandemic, or were you impacted in any way? Um. I would say not. Uh, it, by stroke of genius, or not genius, by completely, actually completely the opposite, complete stroke of luck, I'd finished sort of a major amount of bench work, I think literally in February of 2020. And then of course the pandemic hit, UBC shut down. So, and this is kind of, um, plus I had the book to finish. So it kind of made a natural break for me. I don't anticipate doing any more lab work, but I will say that, you know, certainly it impacted a little bit um, students and, and postdocs for sure. Fortunately, because we do a lot of genomic work that generates gajillions amounts of data and they had a lot of data they had to analyze. So on computer, which you could do remotely, we're not doing field. I can't imagine the disruption for people who had active, you know, large field programs or field experiments. Uh, we had nothing like that. Although there are all sorts of other ways, just not seeing people, uh, clearly a negative impact on, on everybody. Absolutely. But no, I think we made the best of a bad situation, which is what you have to do. I'm glad it wasn't too disruptive. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I don't think, I don't think it was. I, again, um, golden horseshoes, I suppose. And, and just timing. Sometimes it's just timing. I'm curious. Um, do you identify as being a member of any underrepresented communities in your field? And if so, has that impacted your work in any way? Uh, no. And no. No, I've been, I've been, as I say, I've been just extremely fortunate. So no. Do you feel like your field is really open and welcoming to outsiders, or is it a little more insular and, and inward looking? Uh, no, I, I, no, I think it's very, very open, uh, for sure. And I think certainly, you know, to get, to get more specific, I mean, 
I'm a 63-year-old white male, so I have a totally different perspective than most people, clearly. Um, but I think even our department, our university, has, has been pretty well leading leading the curve, I think, in a lot of ways. So I, I feel very privileged, again, very privileged to work here. But yes, no, I think it's very open and welcoming. I mean, biology, for instance, I mean, I think biology is one of the, one of, certainly at the undergrad level, I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's certainly a majority of undergraduate students are female, which were vastly underrepresented in some fields. So there's work to do, but uh, no, I, I feel our field is pretty good. Doesn't mean we can't improve, that, that's for sure. Now, I'm curious, you've painted a really fun picture of uh, fish sciences. Um, what background courses or experience would you recommend for young people listening to this who may want to follow in your footsteps, or I guess in this case, fish steps? <laughs> yeah, fish, yes, very good, fish steps. Uh, well, definitely, as early as you can in your undergraduate career, get working with a lab somewhere. Um, and as I say, I tried, I was into sort of algal physiology at one time, and although I liked it, I tried something else the next year and found that I liked that even more. So trying to be diverse in the experiences you get, trying to get some field experience, I really am a little bit concerned about um, a lack of emphasis on organismal courses into the future at UBC and, and field work. It's becoming harder and harder to do field work. Uh, the permitting and, and all sorts of safety and all sorts of, those are important, but I do worry that it might uh, dissuade some people from doing that. And to me, if you're not doing the kind of biology that I do and you can't relate it to how the things actually make their living out in nature, there's not much point in doing it. And what's organ organismal coursework? <laughs> uh, what I mean is just survey courses. Like I teach a course, The Diversity and Evolution of Fishes, where we give an outline sketch of how diverse they are and what are the evolutionary and ecological processes that generated that diversity. So you get to know the different groups and you get to know about where they live in the environment. Not all of them, but but a, a subsample of them. My colleague Darren Irwin teaches a course in, in ornithology and herpetology, and there's a lot of survey of the different types of birds and herps, etc. So students are studying the animals or plants, and there are several in botany. Students are studying the animals and plants themselves for their own sake. They're not studying, and, and part of that may be the processes that are important to those animals, but they're not starting with a process process uh, like natural selection and hopscotching all over across a whole bunch of different taxa from Clamydomonas to elephants. So they don't, they don't get a, they get a sense of the process, but they don't get a deep understanding of the geography and biology of the, of an organismal group per se. And how are we going to get people to manage fishes under pressing environmental concerns if they don't know anything about how the fish makes its living in nature. You've used that phrase twice now, uh, fish making their living. Um, and I enjoy it. I, I think it's a really um, humanizing way of thinking about these animals or, or for us to relate to them. Well, I, 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 and I, I agree. I mean, I just can't, I can't separate the, the, the fish I work on from where they live. I just can't. And, and you know, I'm, I'm an angler, so I see fish from that end standpoint and you know I see the mountains surrounding and I see the stream they're in to me they all go together so you have to have that connection to where they live uh, in in my view for a full understanding a really full understanding of how these animals exist on earth and how we can how how we can how our behavior can be influenced to minimize the risk to that existence I didn't know you were an angler what do you fish for uh <laughs> Pretty much everything. I, I tend to favor fly fishing, although I do uh, 
I do do some trolling and in, in, in uh, for things like lake trout, but all freshwater, not so much salmon, mostly trout, grayling, char, that sort of thing. Freshwater fishes, large, largest freshwater fishes. And in your opinion, what's the tastiest fish? Ah, oh boy. Um, well, I tell you, there's nothing like a fresh rainbow trout, fresh from the lake. Uh, typically you can't keep them in rivers, but from, from the, from the lake, it's just such a delicate flavor, not overpowering, a little bit of sweetness. Uh, they're my favorite. I, I would have to say. I thought I'd get that advice from you <laughs> well, since I have you. It, it's it, again, I, I keep going, sorry, I keep going back to geography, but it often depends on where you catch them, what kind of lake you catch them in or that sort of thing. Oh yeah. Okay. I guess any pollutants would affect the taste. Yep. And even, even just the natural, uh, limnology of the lake, you know, if it's, kind of shallow and has a sort of muddy substrate sometimes and depending on what they're eating they can they can taste differently they're still good but they can they can taste differently now um going back to your studies uh what would you say was the most important course you took when you were in school oh oh uh, unquestionably the most important class i took was uh, the biology of fishes with the late norman j Wilamowski, which i took here because then i was dabbling considering doing a master's in algal physiology and this man was, I don't know, six, probably my age, 63, 64. And he was so nuts about fishes. And I can remember him. We were on a field trip in Stanley park at two in the morning and we were bailing tide pools or sanding. I can't remember probably violated untold safety regulations compared to today. This was being the very early eighties. And he was sitting, it was raining. Of course he was sitting on a rock extolling us to greater efforts, smoking a cigar <laughs> But he was just so keen. I said, boy, that guy's 64, 65 almost. And he's so keen about these little fishes. There's got to be something to this fish stuff. So he really turned me on certainly to fishes for sure. That was, that's, that course was life changing for me. At, uh, yeah. Oh, the other one I should mention, sorry, is uh, also a retired professor, uh, Tom Carefoot. I took his invertebrate zoology class at Banfield. And once I got a look at Banfield on the West coast of Vancouver Island, I said, I ain't going back East. I'm staying here. Wonderful. I've heard a lot about this new Banfield site. We've uh, recently um, rebuilt our field station up there. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing place. Spectacular West Coast topography and just, I mean, I, I work on the diversity of freshwater fishes. Just try it even in the nearshore marine realm. It's just over, overwhelming. So many species. Now, you mentioned also that you've got your lab filled with students. I'm always curious, what goes through your mind when you're selecting students to work with? Enthusiasm. Uh, independence that those are the things I, I look for. I, I don't want to spoon foods, feed students, uh, and I want them to take the ball, so to speak, if I can use a sports analogy and run with it as much as possible on their own. Cause it's their careers that they're, uh, I, it's their careers that they, I have to give them and I'm happy to give them all the support in the world, but I really value independence, enthusiasm, and an appreciation that they're very lucky to be doing graduate work. How many students have you had cycle through? Pro I probably had close to 40 grad students. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mostly masters, but uh, oh, seven or eight PhD students. And, you know, lots of undergrads as well, but but I think about 40 masters, PhD. That's quite a little school of fish you've got. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, no, they were all great. They were all great to work with. Now, um, I'm sure you've, you've still got a bunch of years left in you, uh, but what do you want to be your legacy when you eventually retire? Oh, Okay. What I'd like uh, for my legacy, uh, well, I'd like my book to be a bestseller, <laughs> number one. No, uh, what my legacy would be, 
would be to be recognized for a body of work that has helped uh, British Columbia and Canadians appreciate the natural biodiversity of fishes around them. To, to uh, again, not not any single thing, but just th- this is someone who made the life of fishes a little bit better because we understand them a little bit better. That's all I really want to do. But I will say that, and uh, it's total team effort, but I'm also very proud of, you know, sort of being on the ground level of the BD Biodiversity Museum. It, you know, to, to take part in something that literally changed the face of the university uh, is something I'm very proud of. And, and, uh, and we all should be, because it was a total team effort for sure. Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, one of the gems in the crown or a crown jewel at, at UBC. Um, you've been in this field for a while now, and you've probably seen it change quite a bit. I noticed that the world is changing at lightning speed, and the field that a person enters uh, at the beginning of their career can be completely different by the time they eventually retire. So where do you see uh, your field going, and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes? Well, boy, um, I mean, certainly I've witnessed the sort of genetic and genomic revolution and, and just the the level of questioning questions that one can ask now. I certainly had no idea when I first started. So I suppose I'd say it's always to be open. And I was, I was a relative late, I've been studying fish genetics for a long time, but fish genomics, because it was such a different level of understanding, it, it took me a while to get my sort of head around it and to get associated with someone who could help me with it. Um, but, you know, always just to be open to new things, to trying new things and never shutting your mind down, doing lots of reading uh, and taking the odd risk now and then. You, you simply have to do it um, to, I think, to progress. But it's just been wonderful to watch the changes in the field. It's 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 hard to imagine that uh, where things may lead. I'm not, a, I'm not a good predictor, so I don't know where it's going to go, but I am anticipating things that we never would have thought of would have, will, will happen. So just be enthusiastic and be open to trying new things. That's a, that's a key thing. Wonderful. Uh, good advice no matter what. So finally, before I let you go, just remind us, uh, what's the name of your book and where can people buy it? It is in the BD gift shop. It's in the UBC bookstore. It's at all most independent bookstores. Um, and if it's not, you can certainly order it. And as a last resort, you can certainly get it on Amazon and Indigo, etc. cetera. Uh, it's Rivers Run Through Us. A Natural and Human History of Great Rivers of North America by Rocky Mountain Books. Just in time for the holidays. Right on, just in time for the holidays, exactly. I have a friend who just published a book and it came out just before the start and it's about hockey, just before the start of the NHL season. So uh, that's good timing too. Those are all the questions I have for you for, for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Uh, no, I, no, I don't think it was nice and wide ranging. I, I did want to say that I really love what you folks are doing at the Pacific Museum of the Earth. It's a great sister institution to the BD Biodiversity Museum. It's great to see it uh, has progressed so far. And I love, I've always loved going in the gem room. It's a fantastic place. And I used to teach one class in 135, just around the corner from where we're speaking. And I remember when I taught that class, I used to take the whole class, which is about 90 students, out into the museum out here. And we all touched the four billion year old rock. And they just thought that was the greatest thing because to actually touch something that's, that, that is that old is pretty impressive. To get your head around it is pretty impressive. So that was always a highlight. I don't think you'd allow me to do that. Now. Oh, no. I, I take the kids out there to touch it all the time. Oh, oh, great. Oh, great. Okay. I'm glad I wasn't violating some rule. No, no. <laughs> if I did, I won't do it again. 
<laughs> or just don't tell anyone. Okay, just don't. That's usually my my modus operandi. Well, thank you, Rick. Uh, not only for this, but everything you've done for the PME, uh, strengthening the bonds between our two institutions. Um, thank you for your science. Uh, thank you for your stories and your passion. And um, it's always fun being in meetings with you because you bring a, a certain uh, verve and energy to the meetings, which is invigorating. Oh, well, th- thank you very much. And, and thanks for showing the interest in, in speaking with me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.